Hii ni idhaa ya Kiswahili ya Channel Africa ikitangaza kutoka Johannesburg, Afrika Kusini. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. Broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi with Amanda Machaka on news, Nosetla Zuma on economics and Musiburi Makura on sport. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Analysts say the threat of a full-blown civil war in South Sudan remains uh, remains unless the country's leaders can broaden power sharing. Zimbabwe prepares to receive COVID-19 vaccine from China and all eyes on South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, who is scheduled to table the State of the Nation address this evening. In economics news, the Zimbabwe Stock Exchange consolidated its fun run ahead of the regional peers last week. And lastly in sport, Tokyo Olympics President Yoshiro Mori is to step down over sexist remarks. Right now it's time for your latest news bulletin. Here's Amanda Machaga. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thanks, Samora. Good afternoon. The United Nations has strongly condemned an attack on a peacekeeper's base in central Mali. 28 peacekeepers from Togo were injured when the temporary UN base in Kirina was hit by fire early Wednesday morning. The group, rather no group, has claimed responsibility for the attack, but Islamic extremists linked to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group regularly attack UN peacekeepers and soldiers. Police in Madagascar have banned all political rallies in the capital Antananarivo ahead of planned protests by the opposition. There are growing concerns in the country over the rate of unemployment and state of the economy. Opposition lawmakers have demanded the withdrawal of security forces deployed outside the home of former President Mark Ravalomanana. They also want the Malagasy Broadcasting System, a television and radio station owned by the former president, to be allowed to operate. Health workers in Tunisia are under immense pressure to treat and save COVID-19 patients as cases soar during the country's severe second wave. The rising infections are raising alarm at a time when the government is facing unrest among youth nationwide over poverty and lack of jobs. The government has re-implemented preventive strategies, including physical distancing, a curfew at night, and the burning of meetings and demonstrations, among others, in an attempt to stop the spread of the virus in the North African country. The country 
has reported more than 219,000 cases and 7,378 deaths. The Somali government has rejected Kenya's fourth request to postpone the hearing of a maritime case between the two countries at International Court of Justice. Information Minister Osman Duby tweeted that they should all go to The Hague next month, saying justice delayed is justice denied. The dispute is over the ownership of a 100,000 square kilometer triangle in the Indian Ocean thought to be rich in oil and gas reserves. Somalia took the case to court in 2014, asking the global court to determine its maritime boundary with Kenya. And South Africa's Home Affairs Director of Ports of Entry, Stephen Faniel, says the long queue of uh, trucks at the Bybridge Border Post in Musina in Limpopo province has uh, been caused by the temporary closure of the border post to Botswana. Trucks uh, crossing into Zimbabwean south from South Africa from the South African side have formed a queue of about seven kilometers at Point Bridge. Faniel says the border post was closed because of flooding. There is extra traffic uh, on the N1 that is uh, going into Bridge first. Uh, we have uh, Robles Bridge at the moment temporarily closed. It might only be for the day because the engineers are working uh, due to the fact that uh, floods has impacted operations uh, at Robles Bridge. So we expected a slight increase of movement. For Channel Africa News, I am Amanda Machaka. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The threat of a full-blown civil war in South Sudan remains unless the country's leaders can broaden power sharing. This is according to a new report by the International Crisis Group, the ICG, released this week, almost a year since the country's formation of a government of national unity. The report, titled Toward a Viable Future for South Sudan, urges South Sudanese elite, religious leaders and civil society to rethink the country's system of governance and create a political system that will work for all ethnic groups. ICG senior researcher for South Sudan, Alan Boswell, has more on that report. As many of your listeners uh, will know, you know, South Sudan is still the world's newest country. Um, it formed almost 10 years ago. And of course, when it was formed, uh, there was a lot of hope around it. There are many uh, Western don- donors, particularly the U.S., um, who, who, who backed it strongly, um, as did the United Nations. And it had a lot of regional support, too, both in East Africa and the, um, and the broader region. You know, South Africa was a, was a strong supporter of South Sudan's liberation movement as well. Um, basically, after independence, um, or basically after a peace deal in 2005 that gave South Sudan the right to, 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 to have independence, what happened is the elite, um, rather than sort of taking the task of building a new state and building a new nation very seriously, started to compete for each other for the for the prize of South Sudan and particularly its oil revenue. Um, and this sort of culminated after civil war, or sorry, after independence in a in a really brutal civil war that kicked off just two years after independence as part of this power struggle. Um, and it really tore the country, which was already um, already at birth one of the most underdeveloped and fragile. Nations and it really, you know, tore it apart. Estimates are that it killed hundreds of thousands of people, um, South Sudanese. And then there's been a very tortuous 
uh, peace process that has been going on ever since that's now um, in about the seventh or eighth year. Um, and the politics is very deadlocked. You basically have a power struggle over the center um, between what has become different ethno-political blocs sure. um, that are all armed. And we argue that and we argue basically, to answer your question, that rather than um, rather than simply adopt this sort of cookie-cutter approach from the Western liberal model, that South Sudanese should look at actually who they are, you know, what they are, and their, spe- their specific challenges. And we encourage them to create a, a system in which in which they govern by consensus uh, rather than a sort of winner-take-all system that they have now, which which we predict will just continue beating um, into more cycles of conflict. Now, how easy will it be? Alan, for the stakeholders to go back to the drawing board and rethink their political system? That's a great question. Um, You know, I think many ways uh, we can issue a report like this because South Sudan is so new, you know, and it's only 10 years old. It's not, you know, it hasn't been independent for for the uh, half a century that most of its other countries on the continent are. So in South Sudan, the state formation process still feels very young. And this isn't something we're just proposing out of nothing. They actually just finished the national dialogue process. Um, and they actually released those conclusions after we had uh, drafted this report, although our report uh, wasn't published yet. And actually, our own conclusions uh, match a lot of the conclusions that are in the national dialogue. So there's a lot of conversation in South Sudan now about how to structure the state, about how to move forward. Um, and so we're not proposing this sort of in the dark. It, it is an active conversation, but we are trying to help uh, direct attention both outside South Sudan um, and also just help guide the conversation that we agree this is a really important step uh, for South Sudan. It basically, it basically they formed the country without really sitting down and negotiating uh, what South Sudan would look like and um, you know how they would share power amongst each other. The report also notes that uh, development partners are also fatigued by years of uh, conflict and that there is the widespread cynicism among donors. Tell us a little bit more about this observation. Yeah, I mean, we hear this a lot at Crisis Group. We, of course, we do a lot of research in South Sudan, but we also speak a lot with its international partners. And we have heard repeatedly since this war broke out, because the war was very, very brutal. You know, the human rights reports out of it are just terrible. And then the peace process was such, you know, that it basically looked like the South Sudanese elite were acting very selfishly and put them, you know, put the country in political uh, gridlock and refused to end the war. And it, and, and it looked like they basically didn't even care about the plight of their people. Um, and so this is just really, um, you know, frustrated um, uh, the, the, the donors who were, you know, basically the ones who were paying for the, uh, for the, for the humanitarian bill, bills, but they also, I think, originally planned to help support the development plan. Um, and, the, and, and what we outline in the report is that, you know, part of this is a crisis that, like, what, what, what international partners thought they were supporting in South Sudan was a sort of uh, centralized modern nation state. And that when South Sudan fell apart in the Civil War among these different camps, they sort of lost the vision for what peaceful South Sudan might look like. Um, and so part of the despair is also just a lack of any plan. They sort of realize their original vision for South Sudan doesn't look practical anytime soon. Um, they can't see any political path towards what they originally hoped for. Um, but they also don't have any sort of fallback plan that would work for South Sudanese, you know, that allow them to start to, to, to rebuild their lives and live peacefully amongst each other. So it's one of the reasons we wrote this report to try to bridge sort of the dialogue that's happening uh, within South Sudan and among elites who want to rethink their country 
but also bridge that plan with uh, with donors and see if it's something that can be supported. And have you made uh, the authorities aware of uh, this report and uh, its uh, recommendations? Yeah, we've shared it with the South Sudanese government. They usually read our reports. Um, up to now, I have not heard a reaction to the published report, um, but we always sort of talk with governments as we're writing reports um, and getting their views you know, about what we're going to recommend. In general, the challenge in South Sudan is that the actual political leaders don't face a clear political incentive to change the system because they sit on top of it. So you have an awkward situation in which the South Sudanese elite and wider political class is actually themselves very frustrated. And that's Alan Boswell, senior researcher for South Sudan at the International Crisis Group, and he was talking to Kumbera Mundelele. Now to Uganda, where Uganda's Supreme Court has started hearing a petition filed by prominent controversial opposition politician Bobby Wine seeking to overturn President Yoweri Museveni's victory in the last month's presidential election. In the petition, Bobby Wine says he has accumulated audio and video recording which prove systematic voter fraud in various parts of Uganda. Tell us more. Here is James Shimanyula. Bobby Wine says in the petition that apart from audio and video recording, he has documentary evidence from local independent electoral observers. Adding a rider to remarks made by Bobby Wine, one of his spokesmen, Matthias Mpuga, says affidavits are also to be presented to the Supreme Court as evidence of vote rigging. We have so many affidavits in support and we are doing them under a lot of difficulty for us to have the witnesses in court. Affidavit that Mpuga is referring to is a written statement from a person which is sworn to be true. In fact, an affidavit is an oath that what the person is saying is the truth. During court proceedings, an affidavit is used along with witness statements to prove the truthfulness of a certain statement in court. The contents of an affidavit reflect the personal knowledge of the person making the statement. And this is how Joel Senyonyi, another spokesman for Bobby Wine, described what happened to the controversial opposition politicians' supporters during the presidential election. The entire electoral process turned into a situation of terror you get to the inevitable conclusion that he's the commonest and only common denominator in the electoral violence in our history. And therefore you know that any election that M7 participates in can never be a peaceful election, can never be a free and fair election demanded by the Constitution of the Republic. They were arresting, torturing and beating our coordinators. They went to where we were photocopying from, arrested the person photocopying and took them we cannot access some of the documents. And they thought rather mischievously we would not be able to file this petition. That was Joel Senyonyi, one of Bobby Wine's spokesmen. Meanwhile, Justin Lumumba Kasule, Secretary General of President Museveni's ruling National Resistance Movement, says tersely that the president's lawyers will rely heavily on election declaration documents from Uganda Electoral Commission to prove that there was no vote rigging in last month's presidential election. We have a declaration form for the presidential from the National Electoral Commission. We shall respond. The hearing of the petition comes at a time when diplomatic sources say the United States is still angered by the denial of accreditation 
for most of their election observers under the blocking of a meeting between the U.S. Ambassador to Uganda and Bobby Wine. According to the diplomatic sources, the United States authorities are apparently planning to impose sanctions, visa bans, aid cuts, and other coordinated actions against officials in President Museveni's government. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. At least 800,000 Chinese COVID-19 vaccines are expected in the Zimbabwean capital Harare on Monday, with the rest expected in the first week of March, officials have said. Zimbabwe is also receiving more vaccines from Russia, while India has promised to provide more vaccines. One million U.S. dollars has been set aside to purchase the much-sought-after COVID-19 vaccines to inoculate 10 million citizens. More from our correspondent, Simon Muchema, reporting from Harare, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwean officials have revealed the first batch of at least 800,000 Chinese vaccine doses are expected in Harare on Monday. More doses are expected in the country early March as the country races against time to inoculate 10 million of its citizens by end of April. According to the Information Minister Monica Mchangwa, the Chinese Sinopharm vaccine has a high efficacy and already in use in Brazil and other first world countries. This, she said, following reports, some countries have already started vaccinations using low-efficacy vaccines, thereby creating the risk their citizens will develop resistance. To avoid this, the Zimbabwean government will not be bulldozed into buying or using vaccines that are not scientifically proven, Muchangwa said. This donation of 200,000 doses, an initial batch of 600,000 doses, which Zimbabwe government has purchased, are expected in the country by 15 February 2021 and the first week of March 2021, respectively. An aircraft will be dispatched to China no later than 13 February 2021 to collect these vaccine doses. Meanwhile, Russia has donated some of its Sputnik vaccines with negotiations ongoing for the procurement of more vaccines. India has also promised to provide vaccines and the Zimbabwe is expecting some vaccines through the Africa Union vaccination program, COVAX. Zimbabwe has so far lost at least three cabinet ministers and several top government officials to COVID-19 during the second wave that started two months ago. At least 1,000 people so far have died in the same period, hence government is now panicking and rushing to import vaccines donated by China. The second wave has been described as severe, hence the reduction of government business by 90%, with the rest of workers operating from their homes. A lockdown and curfew were introduced to curb the spread of the virus, and this will be reviewed on the 15th of February. However, Monica Mchangwa said 60% of the total population will be vaccinated for free in order for the country to attain the national immunity. The government of Zimbabwe has set aside 100 million US dollars to procure around 20 million vaccine doses to immunize 60% of the population, which will help us attain head immunity. Through this initiative, we will vaccinate 10 million Zimbabweans. 
the choice of vaccines has to be science-based, following adequate research and guided by proper findings. Furthermore, the choice of vaccine will be determined by availability and efficacy. Government of Zimbabwe has already developed a deployment plan mapping the priority groupings for rollout of this vaccine. No one will be left behind in this fight against COVID-19. The announcement by Muchangwa comes a day after she also said government was not sure of the vaccines one million US dollar was going to buy. Generally, Zimbabweans are fearful of the vaccines considering their churches posting videos against the mass vaccination for citizens. Another medical professor, Solo Ayongwenya, the chief executive officer of Umpilo Hospital in Bulawayo, said Zimbabweans have no other defense as the vaccines are being vexatious and adding more confusion. He warned the third wave is brewing. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Mchema. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, more than 10 years after the assassination of human rights defender Floribert Chibeya, 117 NGOs have demanded the case to be reopened. The organizations have insisted on the arrest of General John Numbi, the number one suspect in this murder. This follows revelations made in the media by fleeing police officers who were directly involved in the crime. Jean-Noel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. It's now more than 10 years since Vaginus has remained on the death conditions of Floribert Tebea, Executive Secretary of the Voice of Voiceless VSV, and Fidel Bazana, driver of the same organization. The two human rights activists were assassinated on June 1st, 2010, in the facilities of the General Inspectorate of the Congolese National Police PNC, as confirmed by the two fleeing police officers who decided to break the silence revealing that they had carried out instruction of General John Numbi, the then General Inspector of Police. The 117 human rights organizations then demanded his arrest, the securing of these two witnesses as well as the place where the body of the driver Fidel Bazana is hidden. Rostin Manketa is the VSV Executive Secretary. We request that General John Numbi Banzatambo, the main suspect in the murders of Floribert Chebea and Fidel Bazana, be arrested immediately. Reopen the murder trial to fight crimes against the human rights and democracy activists to be protected for investigation. The areas of General Numbi and especially that of General Selua Katanga Jadija, where Fidel Bazana's body was buried. The case was tried at the military court but didn't satisfy both the victims' families and organizations as they believe it never led to the arrest of the real killers. This is supported by Jean-Marie Kabengela, one of the VSV lawyers in this case at the military court. What Kabengela fears is that Bazana's body might have already been moved from the site. It's possible today that they have moved the body, but the important thing is to protect the area as a whole that has been dug and covered again will show signs. For the past 10 years, General John Numbi has continued to serve as a head of the police or the National Army.
The fight has just rebounded today when he is now jobless. Jean-Noël Bamoise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus, also called COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I am James Shimanyula in Nairobi, Kenya. Maintain at least one meter, that is three feet distance, between yourself and anyone who is coughing or sneezing. Residents in the city of Twane Metropolitan Municipality in South Africa expect President Cyril Ramaphosa to focus on the COVID-19 pandemic and hope that he will make an announcement to ignite the economy and create jobs when he delivers the State of the Nation address this evening. It will be an unprecedented address as it will be the first that a sonar will be delivered under a national state of disaster. Leila Magnus reports. In 2017, Charles came from Zimbabwe to find a better future for him and his family. During the same year, Catherine established a research consultancy business in America, Audrey still had a job, and Alpie started being noticed in the art world through the pictures he creates with candle smoke. Three years later, and things have changed, some for the better and some for the worse. This year, all four want President Cyril Ramaphosa to announce concrete plans rather than make empty promises for the future of the country. Audrey was retrenched in May last year during the hard lockdown. She wants to know where the country stands financially. What is happening with our economy and, and just give us a six-month forecast. What is happening with, with lockdown? What is happening with COVID? If you look at the news, we obviously the numbers are down. Um, is it down sufficient enough that we can go to lockdown too? Is it not? Is there a third wave coming? Where do we stand? We just want more concrete answers. Charles says he is blessed to still have a job as a gardener. But the many friends who lost their jobs because of COVID lie heavily on his heart. Oh, I think with that vaccine, it helps people because it's like now uh, people we are struggling like to have the jobs. Some of us, we are breadwinners. Eh? So it's very difficult for us uh, to make the families yet uh, because most of the people we are not working, we are sitting, sitting at home. Uh, and um, some of the companies, they are stopping the people's work because they are saying um, we got a lot of COVID cases. Catherine expects the COVID pandemic to be at the top of the agenda, but wish President Ramaphosa will give business owners hope. A lot of people are fearful about what's going to happen with the future. The fact that our second wave has hit us so hard that um, countries like the US won't necessarily want us to cross the borders. And I'm not quite sure whether President Ramaphosa will address this and address the concerns for those business partners that have international holdings. And certainly it would be great to hear a bit more about that. But considering the pandemic is where it is and we already have to consider the third wave, I feel that he'll probably focus on South African relations and the state of South Africa. As an artist, Alpi has these expectations. I know that there won't be much new, but I just wish uh, 
the president could also uh, focus more on the art department, like music, uh, tell us more about what's happening there, because that's where uh, we just don't know where, what's going on. I know more especially right now he's going to be more focused on how the pandemic has affected us. Yes, it, we all know that and we've been hearing that, but uh, I just wish he could say Many homeless people or waste collectors in the city say they do not believe President Ramaphosa's speech will bring any change for them and therefore they didn't want to comment. I am Lila Magnus in Pretoria. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Change Your Game is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially youth, on the African continent. Last year, Google named me as one of the brightest young minds in the world. The program seeks to portray various opportunities and options that are available for entrepreneurs. I came up with the way for the world not to pass. It focuses and highlights real issues concerning entrepreneurship. There are so many people whose potential is still untapped. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. Channel Africa, the African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa. From an African perspective. Building Africa with love. Hujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts. And if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus, also called COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I am James Shimanyula in Nairobi, Kenya. Maintain at least one meter, that is three feet distance, between yourself and anyone who is coughing or sneezing. And now for your latest headlines, here's Amanda Machaka. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Thanks, Samara. Good afternoon. The United Nations has strongly condemned an attack on a peacekeeper's base in central Mali. The Somali government has rejected Kenya's fourth request to postpone the hearing of a maritime case between the two countries at International Court of Justice. And health workers in Tunisia are under immense pressure to treat and save COVID-19 patients as cases saw during the country's severe second wave. Those way in news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. New analysis from UN Women show that despite women's increased engagement in public life, equity remains far off. For example, women serve as heads of state or government in only 21 countries and 119 countries have never had a woman leader. The United Nations entity working for the entity working for the empowerment of women says the current rate parity will not be reached for another 130 years. The data prepared for a UN Secretary General's report and advance of the upcoming UN Commission on the Status of Women demonstrate global trends, persistent barriers and opportunities for women's full and effective participation and decision-making in public life. More from UN Women Executive Director Pumzile Mlambonuka. Firstly, just to say increasing leadership is key to prudent decision-making. It's also good corporate governance and you would think that decision-makers take that into consideration. But if you look at what has happened to women thus far, uh, the UN is 75 years old, for instance, this year. When it was formed, there was zero women head of state. 75 years ago, you could imagine that uh, in 1995 in Beijing, there were 11 women heads of state. 25 years after Beijing, in 2020, we have 22 women heads of state. So you can see that this is progress, but it is so slow. And at this pace, we are likely to actually have a parity in heads of states in 2050. When you look at uh, members of parliament on global average, we are at 23%. We were at 10% 25 years ago. We have more than doubled, but hey, you know, Double to get, only to get to 23%, that is actually dismal. It should never be that either men or women dominate. You want to have uh, both sexes represented. And of course, women and men in their diversity, even those uh, that have uh, non-confirming gender profiles. How does this gender power imbalance impact government's ability to solve some of the challenges such as poverty, the climate crisis, and the current COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I think in that process, uh, the society is actually denied, if you like, talent in a given country that represents all of the people of that country. In the context of COVID, for instance, we have noticed that uh, the task forces that are making decisions on COVID in most countries, women are underrepresented in those uh, task forces. It means that some of the issues that have 
dominated uh, women's lives in the midst of poverty do not get adequate attention. They do not come up first. At, at the top of that, it's decisions that have to do with preventing and dealing with violence against women. Women have so much work as a result of COVID and working from home that you actually need uh, not just the family to manage uh, those circumstances. You need employers, you need government to understand something that has always been a problem in any case, the uneven distribution of the burden of care that is on women. And uh, if we're talking about building back better after COVID, we should not emerge in COVID with these situations where we don't have infrastructure to relieve families from the burden of care. So the classical one is infrastructure for childcare. You know, as you know, in South Africa, we also have spoken a lot about that. Uh, there's been lots of studies that shows the importance of having affordable, accessible childcare infrastructure. It creates jobs for women. It provides a better early learning education for children, and it enables women to have time to engage in economic and other activities that assist them with their own development. So, you know, it's a win, 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 win if you make those, but there has to be a decisiveness and women are the ones that are likely to point out those issues. Do you think that it's realistic to aim to achieve gender parity in political life in the near future? I think it is realistic. I don't think that it's going to be overnight. Women have got to work for it. It's refreshing that we have got radical impatience amongst younger women and men uh, who believe in gender equality. I think uh, we are looking at what we can achieve in 10 years, leading to the 2030, uh, you know, timeframe of the Sustainable Development Goals, where all countries have got to report on progress and efforts. To the extent that these are not binding agreements, the SDGs are not laws, but many countries take their obligations to each other serious. They do make efforts, and I have just seen uh, from year to year, evaluating countries, uh, countries making uh, efforts and activists and women in those countries' demands. Parity by 2030 may be steep, but I think it's worth a try. Does your analysis make some recommendations on how to better respond to the complex problems of gender equality and accelerate progress in achieving gender parity? Yes, uh, we make uh, progress in the report. I hope that uh, you will uh, get a copy uh, when when we we don't want to steal the thunder of the Secretary General, but it's coming out soon. Yeah, but I mean, quotas and special measures is one measure, a relief mechanism that we have to fast track. Secondly, we also uh, are wanting legislation that reflects what is a constitutional parliament. If a parliament underrepresents women, it cannot be said to be a democratic parliament. To infuse that uh, language, and in the next few weeks, we will be negotiating with member states. We're going to have three weeks of negotiations on the different recommendations that we are making. Already, you can see the caucus positions of different countries, so you can see that there's appetite in some countries. 
And that was Pumzilem Lambangoka, UN Women Executive Director, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. According to stats from the National Cancer Registry, one in four South Africans are affected by cancer. These figures stress the importance of not delaying care as it can often be too late when exploring treatment options as many, cancer progr- many cancers progress rapidly. However, concerns continue to mount as the COVID-19 pandemic results uh, in delayed cancer screening and treatment with fears of long-term consequences in morbidity and mortality figures. For more on the importance of continued cancer screening and treatment despite the pandemic, here's oncologist with the Life Healthcare Group, Dr. Louis Cathan. Globally, it's exceptionally worrying. Um, in April 2020, figures in the United States demonstrated that there was a decrease in mammogram screening for breast cancer by 89.2%. Sure. And for colorectal cancer using colonoscopies by 84.5%. So those are dramatic reductions in patients actually seeking screening interventions. The problem with decreasing screening is that the idea of screening is to try and diagnose cancers early before they become symptomatic. And in so doing, you would diagnose them at an earlier stage and potentially they are much more curable then. Now, let's talk about that further, you know, the importance of cancer screening and how people can know that they actually need uh, um, those services. So first and foremost, we're all different. Um, It's all based on what our uh, family history is, what our comorbidities are. So in other words, are we diabetic? Are we hypertensive? What our physical activity is, what our diet's like, whether we smoke or drink. So we always advise our patients to be guided by their primary health care practitioner. Um, so generally, the guidelines state that anyone over the age of 50 needs to have a colonoscopy. But there are certain conditions like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or a strong family history of colorectal cancer, which would mean that you would have your colonoscopy earlier. And similarly, with breast cancer, you know, there are patients who've got a very strong family history of breast carcinoma, and therefore their mammograms need to be done at a much younger age. We do, however, you know, and worldwide, including at Life Health Care, we do encourage all our ladies to regularly, monthly examine their breasts and go for regular clinical examinations with their primary health care practitioner, as well as adhering to the routine guidelines and go for mammograms regularly. Now, we are living in difficult times, Doctor, of COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what are healthcare facilities doing to continue providing patients with the highest level of treatment and care without compromising their safety during the pandemic? So, all hospital groups, including life healthcare hospital groups, have invested and taken great care and invested in state-of-the-art infection prevention technology. And also, they've done basic things, you know, the, the basic things as in uh, providing their staff and their practitioners with PPE. There are no visitors allowed into hospitals at all healthcare facilities and hospitals. Patients are screened at the door with a questionnaire, their temperature and asking about symptoms. All patients and staff have to wear masks. We maintain good social distancing, and we do the basic things, avoid large gatherings, 
number one. And number two, you know, wash your hands with uh, 70% alcohol, hand wash, and otherwise, if you don't have access to that soap and water. But, you know, just the normal COVID um, preventative measures need sure. to be employed. But healthcare facilities have been very stringent and have employed that. And just as we wrap up, Doctor, what would you say have been uh, the key lessons around how COVID-19 is affecting cancer patients, which um, needs to be given enough attention? Well, the, the first thing is that cancer patients are more susceptible to getting worse COVID, okay, and worse outcomes with their COVID. So the one thing is, as we are awaiting eagerly our vaccine program, we should be encouraging all patients, especially oncology patients, to be prioritized to receive the vaccine. The second thing I'd like to emphasize is that cancer doesn't wait for COVID. So if you do have symptoms, do not avoid. If you do feel a breast mass or any other mass or you're bleeding from anywhere, the normal symptoms seek medical attention. Do not delay your routine screening because it could potentially save your life if you find an early malignancy. And that was Dr. Louis Cathan, an oncologist with the Life Healthcare Group in South Africa. He was on the line to Kumbela Mujalele. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. It's now time for your latest economics news. Here's Nosikle Zuma.
Thank you, Samara. Good evening. Namibia's national carrier Air Namibia has decided to suspend all operations, cancelling all of its flights and grounding its aircraft with immediate effect. The airline urged all customers to cancel reservations and request refunds, according to media reports. This announcement leaves more than 600 employees without jobs and that it had been a cabinet decision to file for voluntary liquidation. Employees will receive a basic salary for the next 12 months, but will not receive any benefits. The airline has been having operational issues, the latest being last week's resignation of board members who accused the government of interference. South Africa's analysts say President Cyril Ramaphosa should focus on reducing the country's $271 billion U.S. dollars debt instead of increased spending when he delivers the State of the Nation address on Thursday evening. National Treasury projects that the national debt will increase to over 80% of the gross domestic product this year and will only stabilize at around 95% by 2025. Chief Economist at Efficient Groove Davi Root says... Although Ramaphosa is expected to announce a reduction in government spending, he will leave the details of government's budget for Finance Minister Titombaweni's budget address later this month. That's fiscal limitation the president is probably going to refer to. And obviously the reason why he's going to say that because there's huge pressure on the fiscus to spend on everything. And we've reached the end of the line. We can't keep on spending money like this. And the president needs to acknowledge that as well. The Zimbabwe Stock Exchange consolidated its fine run ahead of regional peers last week, underpinned by a string of positive sentiment that pushed the benchmark index 11.43% as bulls camped in a region that is battling to shake off a COVID-19 scourge. It picked up from another positive performance in January when Zimbabwe's oldest equities market gained 35%, closing month 117 billion US dollars firmer. The ZSE market capitalization closed at 435 billion US dollars last month. South Africa's power utility ASCOM has suspended load shedding as generation capacity has sufficiently recovered, helping to ease the capacity constraints. The power utility implemented stage 3 load shedding on Wednesday after a number of generation units broke down. ASCOM spokesperson Sikonati Machat. Over the past 24 hours, ESCOM team successfully returned four generation units to service, helping ease the capacity constraints sufficiently to enable us to not require load shedding. Another five units are expected to return to service during the next two days. The load shedding of the past two days has also enabled ESCOM to adequately replenish the emergency generation reserves. ESCOM continues to implement reliability maintenance during this period and as such the system will continue to be constrained with the risk of load shedding remaining elevated. And finally, the French government has abandoned plans to build a fourth terminal at Charles de Gaulle Airport outside Paris. It says the project is now obsolete because of climate change and the coronavirus pandemic. The BBC's Hugh Schofield has more. Terminal 4 was described as an airport within an airport, the equivalent of putting Paris's second airport, Orly, 
inside Charles de Gaulle. By the end of the 2030s, it was projected to handle 450 extra flights at the airport every day and 40 million extra passengers every year. But since approval, two things have happened. First, in order to respect carbon emission targets, the government's radically changed its transport priorities and now says any airport development must include plans for the electric and hydrogen-fueled planes of the future. The second change, of course, is COVID. For your financial indicators, one US dollar is trading at 377.99 Nigerian Naira, 10.77 Botswana Buddha, 108.58 Kenyan Shilling, and 21.55 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 5.37 Brazilian Real, 73.82 Russian Ruble, 72.81 Indian Rupee, 6.44 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.71 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 72 pence to the British pound and at 82 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at one. $1,836 in platinum at $1,237 per ounce, while brand crude oil is at $61.07 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Nasiklesum. And right now it's time for your latest sporting news. Here's Musiburi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, South African football side Kaiser Chiefs face an anxious wait over the future of their CAF Champions League group stage debut against weighted Casablanca after Moroccan authorities confirmed team players and officials were not allowed into the country due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It seems likely that the game will now be played at a neutral venue, as it was with Bluefontein Celtics Confederations Cup away tie with Rivers United of Nigeria, which was moved to neighbouring Benin, when Nigerian authorities insisted that Celtic players and officials will not be able to go into quarantine if they had entered the country. Now, Chiefs were set to play away data this coming Saturday. Meanwhile, the, Moro- uh, the Royal Moroccan Football Federation has called on CAF to postpone the match or hold it in another country if the postponement is not possible. Bayern Munich forward Thomas Muller is set to miss out on today's Club World Cup final in Doha after testing positive for coronavirus on Wednesday. According to German media, Muller tested positive after Bayern's training session on Wednesday. Now, neither Bayern nor tournament organizers FIFA have yet confirmed the positive test. Now, Bayern will take on Mexican giants Tigris UNAL in the final, and a kickoff tonight is at 8 p.m. Central African time at the Education City Stadium. Shalini Boyson says she's looking forward to her new challenge as coach of South Sudan's women's national football team. The South African was on Wednesday officially unveiled by the South, uh, for the South Sudan Football Association as a head coach on a two-year contract that will see her take charge of the Bright Starlets till 2023. Now, Shalini previously worked as an assistant coach of Houston Dash in the National Women's Soccer League in the USA. And most recently, she had been working as the assistant coach of South Africa's senior Women's national team that is Banyana Banyana. She explains what attracted her to South Sudan. Why South Sudan? Why not South Sudan? I think 
CAF has been very instrumental in, you know, their, their strategy that they've put out there, the actions that they want taken in terms of women's football in Africa. And I think when South Sudan put up the, the, the notice that they were looking for a head coach, I didn't hesitate to apply because I feel like their vision, you know, just falls in line with what I have envisioned for any young country that wants to build the, uh, you know, like a long sustainable um, strategy in terms of women's football. So when I saw what they were doing in, in South Sudan, I was like, I'm applying for this job. I don't care how I get there. I don't care who makes this happen, but someone has got to make this happen. And the head of the Tokyo Olympics Organising Committee is stepping down after being condemned for making sexist remarks. Yoshiro Mori will offer his resignation at a special meeting on Friday. He has been, uh, or rather, he has come under fire for saying that uh, for saying women spoke too much in meetings and were annoying. Now, the BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes reports. 83-year-old Yoshiro Mori first apologised and then said he withdrew the comments unconditionally. The Japanese government declared the matter closed, but they had not reckoned on the huge local and international backlash against Mr. Mori. A petition demanding his resignation quickly garnered nearly 150,000 signatures. Around 400 Olympic and Paralympic volunteers quit, and Japanese tennis star Naomi Osaka condemned Mr. Mori's words, calling them ignorant. Then on Wednesday, the head of Toyota, one of the biggest Olympic sponsors, weighed in calling Mr. Mori's comments regrettable and out of keeping with Toyota's values. That may have been the final straw. And finally, Spanish second seed Rafael Nadal will meet Britain's Cameron Norrie in the Australian Open third round after both won their matches on Thursday. Nadal's bid for an outright men's record 21st Grand Slam continued with a 6-1, 6-4, 6-2 win over the American qualifier Michael Moore on the Road Lever Arena on Thursday, while British number three Norrie eventually beat Russia's Roman Sulifin. 36756376 to reach the last 32 for the very first time in his career. Those are sports news at the Sour. This is Africa Digest. And that is how we wrap it up. From myself, Somora Magesi, producer, and Tlatla Matlangu, technical producer, Wiseman Mangal, and the rest of the team, thank you so much for joining us. Info at channelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp, plus 27763003327. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa from an African perspective.
Mutansu kutipeza pa tambatula interneti la www.channelafrika.com.